Hello and welcome to the i3 podcast. My name is Wouter Klein and I'm the Director of Content for the Investment Innovation Institute. For more information about our educational forums for institutional investors, please visit our website at www.i3-invest.com. There you can also subscribe to our complimentary newsletter, i3 Insights in which we discuss investment strategy and asset allocation questions with asset owners around the world. Now, as you all know, we love our disclaimers in this industry, so here's ours. This recording is for educational purposes only. It does not constitute financial advice. Please enjoy the show. This podcast was sponsored by Franklin Templeton. As such, the sponsor may make suggestions for topics, but the final control over the podcast remains with the Investment Innovation Institute. Welcome to the i3 podcast. I'm here today with Mike Comparado, who is the head of commercial real estate at Benefit Street Partners. Benefit Street Partners is a credit-focused alternative asset firm owned by Franklin Templeton. Mike, welcome to the show. Thank you, Walter. Very nice to meet you. So we're here today to talk about uh, a commercial real estate. And I think your background, there's a bit of a story there uh, with property investing and uh, uh, that has sort of come back into your family for quite a bit. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, this is uh, an industry that uh, is many generations in my family. Uh, So my grandfather uh, started our family business in 1946, uh, actually after he fought in World War II. Uh, came back to the U.S. and started our family business in Rochester, New York, originally building single-family homes. And he built his first shopping center in 1958 uh, and proceeded to build a a fairly large family business over the course of the next 60, 70 years uh, with all of his uh, sons and a lot of my family members. Uh, I'm about the only family member not still involved in the family business, but I stayed in the commercial real estate sector. So this is an industry that I've been around my entire life. Uh, I was on construction sites at two and three years old uh, with my family and uh, have really have really got commercial real estate kind of in my DNA. So is every uh, family gathering talking about property? <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, it, it's not a lot of broad uh, topics at Thanksgiving dinner. Uh, everything seems to focus around commercial real estate. <laughs> <laughs> fair enough, fair enough. Let's talk a little bit about sort of the current situation in the uh, real estate sector. So you brought out recently uh, a paper, which is sort of an outlook on the sector with the subtitle, um, There is a storm on the horizon, then what? Which, by the way, is a great title. As a journalist, I appreciate the title. Um, But basically, you you describe there is uh, more or less of a hurricane brewing in, in the sector with inevitably some casualties ahead. What is happening? Yeah, so it's I, I spent most of my life in Florida. I grew up in Florida, and I felt like there was always a hurricane that we were dealing with out in the Atlantic. And the, the question always around that was, you know, how bad is a storm going to be, and where is it going to hit? 
And so as I was looking through kind of the market, it's one of those things that there's a storm out there. There's no question it's going to hit. And it's really just what's the severity at this point. And it's really a function of, of obviously interest rates and what's happened very quickly within the United States and in a very, very short period of time and, and, and frankly around the world. But we're dealing with basically a, a repricing of commercial real estate assets as a function of interest rates going up and going up precipitously. Um, so we had you know, roughly a 1% 10-year U.S. Treasury just a few years back. Uh, it recently hit 5%. You know, we're talking about the largest bond market correction ever. Uh, so when you have an interest rate move of that magnitude, certainly over the shortened tightened time period that we have it it has massive ramifications on on all asset classes but with commercial real estate commercial real estate is a very credit and debt intensive asset class and so i think it's even more sensitive to that asset class so what we're dealing with is is the storm that is you know a direct result of interest rates going to levels that we haven't seen in in nearly 20 years and I think a big part of this this storm is sort of the the maturity wall that is hitting the sector. And I've seen different figures being thrown around, but um, one of them that's that's mentioned is that there's potentially a trillion US dollars in commercial real estate loans maturing by the end of next year, and and potentially two and a half trillion by the end of 2027. What impact is this going to have on the market? So it's it's a meaningful number in any year. You know, I think the the stat that we've been using is is approximately 1.5 trillion in the next 36 months. So generally in line with what you provided and, and and referenced. I think the issue is more about the supply of credit right now than the demand. So this maturity wall is something that we're facing. It's unavoidable. These loans are maturing. But in the face of all of that demand, we're having a meaningful drop in supply of credit. And that's both in the banking sector and in the alternative lending non-banking sector. So the banking sector has all but completely exited the commercial real estate market for you know, the past, it feels now, several quarters. And, I, and I'm guessing it's going to be for the next several quarters going forward. But even the alternative lending space is really struggling with legacy loan issues, legacy portfolio issues. Uh, specifically relating to to office buildings, I think is the worst asset class. Uh, but people just aren't lending because they're trying to hold liquidity to save cash to solve problems or unforeseen problems that could be around the corner. So it's, you know, again, it, it, it's a reference to that perfect storm. We have trillions with a T of dollars that are needed within the commercial real estate credit space. And in the face of those those needs, we have lenders meaningfully pulling back in the market. Yeah, and I think that's quite a different situation than what we have seen in the past, where I think you mentioned that sometimes investors have been relying on sort of time to to pull them through whenever there's a declining prices in, in, in the market, that they just roll over loans and hopefully time will sort it out and, and properties will get back up in value. But with this reduced amount of capital, that doesn't seem to be an option anymore. Can you take us through this? It's it's a different option. Um, so there there's a, a fun play on words or adage, uh, you know, a rolling loan gathers no loss. And I, I think that's what lenders are, are looking at today is just push it out as far as you can. 
And while that's a formula that has worked historically, I think there's two reasons why it might not work today. First and foremost, for the past four decades, we've, we've had 40 years of generally declining interest rates, right? I, is this a complete shift where you know, we're going to have a reversion to the mean and rates are not going to go back down? If you just waited for the past 40 years, things always got better. And if that dynamic goes away, that can be very painful for markets. But the old playbook of pretend and extend, as, or extend and pretend, I guess, is, as it's called, it typically works when interest rates are low, right? Because there's enough, there's enough cash flow at the assets to service the debt. And even though the loan matured, you can extend that maturity date and still keep current on the payments. The issue that we're having today is rates are not low. Rates are the highest they've been in decades. And so instead of extend and pretend, it's really more extend and accrue, right? Like there's not enough capital being thrown off of these assets to cover the debt service payment with rates this high. So the playbook that has worked for the past several dislocations isn't going to be so simple to, to be executed on this time around. Yeah. So do you already see that sort of filtering through in the market? Do you see more distressed cases? Do you see more transaction activity or maybe even less? You know, it's interesting. We, we've seen a lot of deer in headlight syndrome for most of 2023. And I think 2024 is the deer getting run over by the 18 wheeler. Uh, <laughs> unfortunately, uh, I, I wish it wasn't. But the reality is, is there's a lot of damage that's coming. I think the office sector is is meaningfully meaningfully impacted by this, uh, but we're seeing it across all sectors really. I mean, I think you, I think you would see in the multifamily sector values are down peak valuation to today, anywhere from twenty to thirty percent. Uh, office, uh, it could be fifty to seventy percent. I mean, you're talking meaningful meaningful losses that are going to be very hard for, for some of these financial institutions to navigate over the next few years. Let's come back to office a little bit later, but with those uh, prices coming down, what is sort of your sense of, of the, the valuations? Do they come down to a more uh, uh, fair value or are there discounts in the market that create opportunities? What is your sense there? I think it's still a little too early to determine if we're now at fair value or if we are discounted to where value should be. So much of this is going to be determined by forward interest rates. Uh, I think the market has been wrong for the better part of the last 12 to 18 months on, on the forward outlook for interest rates, uh, which is bizarre. I feel like the Fed has been very clear uh, that we're going to be higher for longer and no one believed them. And <laughs> it actually played out that way. I personally don't see a V-shaped recovery in, in overall commercial real estate assets. I think we are in the very early stages of you know a repricing of commercial real estate properties. And I think that bottoming process uh, could take 18 to 24 months in total. So I think this is a time to be patient. I think the losses on the equity side are inevitable. Uh, and I think they're they're going to lead to opportunity. I think the opportunity today is far more prevalent on the credit side uh, of the business than it is the equity side, but there will be an, an opportunity for equity investors as well. I just think it's it's very early uh, in the workout process to to be dipping your toe into the equity side of the business. 
So what are some of the opportunities on the credit side? Uh, is, is there one particular part of the capital structure that's more attractive than others? Um, we historically have focused on senior lending. I think our focus on senior mortgage lending has been a function of we just didn't like the risk return profile of mezzanine loans and sub debts for the past several years. Uh, I think those those markets are correcting themselves as a part of this repricing as well. So we're looking throughout the capital stack. We invest up and down the capital stack. We're always looking for best relative value, but we are predominantly a multifamily lender. Uh, we are big believers in that sector for many reasons, positive reasons at the asset level, but equally as important is the liquidity of the asset class given the other the illiquidity in the other asset classes multifamily in the united states because of uh the agencies freddie mac and fannie mae there's just an embedded liquidity in that asset class that other commercial real estate assets don't have so yeah we're we're looking at things from a very macro basis on multifamily that if you believe which i do that prices and values are down let's say 20 to 30 percent from peak if I'm writing a new loan today on a multifamily property that's, let's just pick a number, 70% loan to value, there's another 30% value cushion from an already reduced price, which means any loan that I'm writing today, we would need to see a peak to trough correction in values of over 50% on multifamily assets. And I just don't see that in the cards today. So from a very macro standpoint, it feels like the best time to write loans that we've seen in probably 20 years. Uh, now, if we see a, a six handle on the 10-year U.S. Treasury, I reserve <laughs> I reserve the right to, to change that opinion. But as it stands today, it, it feels like multifamily lending right now is is some of the best risk return that we've seen in a long, long time. I mean, we're, we're making equity-like returns in credit products. And it's not often that you you get to say that. So we've seen a lot of interest in multifamily assets, um, which partly seems to be driven by investors sort of avoiding the, the retail and the office sectors as well. To what degree do you have a sense that the prices in multifamily uh, might be pushed up by that sort of trend? Are they getting towards a stage that you worry about it? It's interesting. There is... There is a lot of capital. And when I say a lot of capital, I'm talking tens of billions of dry powder sitting on the sidelines allocated for multifamily investing. And again, I think that brings us back to my point before, just the liquidity of that asset class has a different dynamic than any other asset class in commercial real estate. And so I do think that that, that level of capital that's available, that dry powder coupled with the liquidity really does put a floor on multifamily asset values. Um, again, if we see an incredible run in the tenure of another 150, 200 basis points, yes, values are going to continue to decline. Uh, but frankly, if we see you know a 6 or 7% tenure treasury, we all have other problems in other asset classes as well. It won't just be commercial real estate. Uh, but I do think there is a lot of capital ready to jump into the into the multifamily sector and I do think that it will put a floor in some capacity on values. Yeah. Is is there enough assets to go around in the multifamily assets? There is. I mean, it, it's by far the largest segment of the commercial real estate sector. And um, 
I think that we've had a housing problem in the U.S. or a housing shortage for for decades. That is not going to be fixed anytime soon. So I, I believe that there's going to be overall positive supply demand trends in the multifamily sector for you know, the foreseeable future. And I do think we're going to have a meaningful drop off in supply of new multifamily properties because of the banking crisis that's going on. The, the, the regional and community banking system was really the top credit provider for construction loans in the U.S., and those banks are, are really gone. The alternative lending space is trying to fill that void, uh, but the alternative lending space is nowhere close to large enough to fill the size void that they have left behind. So I think you're going to see a meaningful drop off in multifamily supply over the next two to five years. There's been a, a lot of talk about this regional banking crisis. And from what I understand, they were a key source of financing uh, in, in this space. Who's taking up the slack in that? Um, how much impact does it have on the sector? It has a massive impact. Um, it has a massive impact on on everybody. I, I think the and all asset classes. I think the the banking system is much worse uh, than we believe it is. Uh, it's not on the front page as of right now. But we saw three of the four largest bank failures in the history of the United States, and a lot of people attributed that to the ten-year Treasury getting to four percent. Well, the Treasury ten-year Treasury just hit five percent. So. <laughs> I, I don't think it's gotten any better for bank balance sheets than it was six months ago when those bank failures happened. It's really difficult times. Uh, there's a lot of exposure to commercial real estate. Uh, there's a lot of exposure to some fixed income assets that have mark to market issues. And it's it's very simple, right? If banks aren't lending, it's because things are bad at the bank. And that's that's just a very simple takeaway from all of this is they've stopped lending because they're very concerned about their existing portfolios and what they're going to have to clean up in the coming quarters and coming years. So does this extend as well into some of the larger banks, or is this really a regional banking issue? I think that the large banks have the same issue on the asset side of the balance sheet. Uh, I think the difference is that their access to capital is very different than the regional banking system and the community banking system. So um, there is a a de facto backstop by the federal government uh, of the large to you know too big to fail type banks, and they are too big to fail. So there is this de facto you know safety net underneath them where they will not be allowed to fail. Uh, and I just don't think you have that at the regional bank level, as we saw. Right, three went out of business, went out of business quickly. You know the Fed stepped in and, and did what they're supposed to do in that instance. Uh, but yeah, there's there's no reason to think that the asset problems are any different from community to regional to money center. Uh, I think just their their ability to clean up problems is very different. Now, let's come back to the office sector. Um, I think you've been quite sort of negative about the outlook for this sector. And in the paper we mentioned earlier, I think you said uh, something along the lines where, well, retail might have been able to avoid the apocalypse, but we're not so sure office will. But what is sort of your thinking behind it? The COVID-19 pandemic really changed the way that we operate. It changed travel. It changed demand for hotels. Uh, it changed demand for office. And I think changed it forever. When I talked about the retail apocalypse, Amazon was the catalyst that everybody thought every shopping center was going to be empty. And why would I ever go to the store again? And I can just go on the computer and 
order my my things. And you know, that just didn't come to fruition. Uh, retail, in fact, has performed fantastically well over the past 10 years in the U.S., with the exception of kind of class B and C malls and secondary and tertiary markets, retail has done very well. Office, I think we're talking about a change um, that might not be recoverable. And the way that we do business is, is, I believe, changed forever. I mean, just think of the, you know, the salesperson that has a client several hundred or thousand miles away. They would go four times a year to go visit that client, do a sales call, have a sales dinner, pitch new products. You know, I think that travel is now down to maybe twice a year. And then the other two are done by Zoom. You're having all of these meetings that no longer have to take place face to face. You no longer need to be in the office. Uh, it has changed the way that we office. You know, the work from home phenomenon is is very real. It's not changing in the foreseeable future in the U.S. And I think I think we just have an identity crisis in office that I'm not sure it ends well. Uh, and I, I think it could be very, very painful if you, if you look at the amount of office buildings the borrowers are just walking away from at loan maturity. They're just handing them back to the banks. They know there's nothing they can do with it. As I mentioned earlier, commercial real estate is, is very heavily oriented and fixated on credit. No one is making loans on office buildings right now. It is next to impossible. You know, in, in the past 25 years, it was it's never been this hard, except for 2009, right? Right after Lehman Brothers to get a loan on an office building. And if you can't get a loan, yeah, what do you do? So it's it's really bad in office. I'm not sure it's recoverable, and I think it's going to be the source of of billions and billions of dollars of losses across the banking system. So you don't think that companies have the power to sort of force people back into the office? Um, perhaps that should that that would have already happened if that was the case. But what do you think is is the sense of that there's still some normalization post pandemic of of that coming back to the office? I think we're slowly seeing people required to come back to the office, but it's it's just not enough. Uh, I think what you know technology has really changed the demand for office. Uh, you know, you were in the office five days a week without question, fifty two weeks a year. You know, now some places are you know work from home two days a week, three days a week, come in for the morning. It, it's it's very very haphazard and scattered what people are requiring people to do and and honestly you know the the part that's that's even scarier is is artificial intelligence mm -hmm. as as ai grows over the next several years what is the role for kind of the the younger analyst type group the the paralegals the you know what kind of job replacement in the professional sector is going to be put out of jobs because of AI. And AI doesn't need a seat. It doesn't need a desk. It doesn't need space in the refrigerator. You know, it just needs a data center in the middle of who knows where and, and AI works. So I think Office has headwinds that are potentially insurmountable. Uh, and I think it's going to be very, very painful in that sector. What, what is your take on the impact of AI? Because on one hand, there seems to be a lot of different applications for it. But at the same time, usually technology creates a lot of jobs as well, and it 
throws up all sorts of problems that didn't exist before and you need people to do different types of things. Do, do you think there is really a significant reduction in, in jobs uh, in the future because of it? It's scary, right? And as, as you mentioned, all new technologies are scary. It's, it's interesting. My son wrote a paper in school about the telegraph. And when the telegraph was first created, talking about all the, the leaders around the world, all the diplomats were talking about how not having this face-to-face -face interaction and this technology, in air quotes, you know, the telegraph was going to change how everything worked. And, you know, everybody was terrified. And then the telephone and, and then the Internet and now AI, right? All of these things we have created, it's very scary. The unknown is scary. Change is scary. So I think it's, I think it's a little scary. I think it's also an opportunity. Uh, and I think it's just too early in the life cycle of AI to know what the long-term impacts are. Uh, I will say the pace of growth in that space is shocking in terms of the AI getting smarter, the AI getting more interactive. It is really staggering how quickly this is happening. And I think it's going to be impacting our daily lives much sooner than a lot of us probably thought 12 months ago. Do you also see that impacting sort of new developments in, in, in properties? Do they suddenly need to receive like space for server rooms that are larger? Or does it impact sort of the, um, the, the design of buildings where it hadn't in the past? Uh, I don't think it's going to change the design of of multifamily buildings or of any other buildings. I mean, we we specifically have data center buildings that are built to house these operations. The amount of power, the amount of air conditioning, the amount of water, the amount of just raw material that needs to go into these things is so unique. Um, so I think the I think we'll probably stay uh, with these these data centers around the country. You know, the interesting thing for me in, in the data center space is something that we've always avoided merely because I, I'm always scared that we're going to wake up tomorrow and there's just going to be a new technology that no one thought of yesterday that makes the data centers completely obsolete. Maybe it'll never happen. I don't know. But whenever you have something that has a very, very specific use, uh, it's always scary in real estate if there isn't some alternative use for that. And uh Data center is just something that 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 keeps me up at night uh, a little bit. Okay, fair enough. Um, if we look at the, the the retail side of things, so you explain sort of that the apocalypse never came. To what degree? What do you um, attribute that to? Is is that more the fact that maybe people have underestimated that shopping is not just a transaction, but is also an experience? You you sort of see now malls changing with offering food and hospitality and it seems to be much more like people go there to just also go out not just to buy stuff a hundred percent we are social beings and we we can't just sit at home and be behind a screen uh, i don't know if you've ever seen the movie wally -E, but you know wally's -E got these massively obese people that don't move they don't leave their homes yes. they're just sitting in front of a screen yeah, you know, I, I really hope we aren't gravitating towards that as a humanity. Uh, I am scared every once in a while that we are, but um, I think people like getting out of the house. I think people like being around other people and around action and, and around energy. And and I think retail had to reinvent itself uh, to be more experiential and, and incorporate you know restaurants and 
and experiences and concerts and and more uh, interactive interactive retail, if you will. Uh, so I think the retail sector did a really really good job of figuring out how to coexist with the online world, the Amazons of the world, um, and and like I said, in 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 most you know good demographic areas of the U.S., retail is really thriving right now. Yeah, yeah. So you've been in the sector for quite a while. Um, if you look at some of the the more recent transactions you've been involved in, have you do you have any sort of favorite one that you look back on and think like this is a great example? Well, my wife always tells me I'm supposed to love all our children the same. So uh, <laughs> <laughs> I don't I don't want to specifically call out any you know in particular transaction, but it's it it's just interesting. It, it, it's the first time in a long time where there is a, a huge need for debt capital and the banking sector is non-existent. It's not like they've pulled back a little bit. It's not like they said, okay, instead of writing 75% loan-to-value loans, we're going to write 70% loan-to-value loans. They went from fifth gear to in neutral uh, instantaneously. And that's really difficult for the market to to absorb. So it, it really does lead to the opportunity and credit. And I think, you know, if you stay focused on, you know, that multifamily asset class, you know, the liquidity of that asset class, the underlying fundamentals of that asset class, I, I think we are going to write some of the best loans that we've written in the next 24 months that we've done in, in the past 20 years. So it, it's just kind of the perfect culmination of, of all of these things happening at one time that present this opportunity. Yeah. Do you have any sense of how long that opportunity might exist? Because usually if it's an opportunity of that magnitude, there will be some parties that will step in at one stage. Yeah, I, I think this is the bottoming process that probably takes a good 18 to 24 months. Uh, I think a lot of people think it's it happens quicker than that. Uh, and I just don't think it's going to happen quickly here. I mean, we were dealing with you know, loan workouts in 2011 and 2012 that were still hanging around from Lehman Brothers. Um, so I, I think that this is probably an 18 to 24 month process. Um, and I think it's going to be a little bit longer and a little bit more painful uh, than people are anticipating today. I, I, I hope I'm wrong. Uh, I, I don't wish losses on anyone. Uh, I wish that, you know, everything got back to normal as soon as possible. But I just think that this is going to take a while for it to work its way through the entire system. And and these are illiquid assets. Again, with the exception of multifamily, you know, commercial real estate is an illiquid asset class. And that process of lender taking back an asset, lender putting the asset on the market for sale, that asset clearing at a price, it's a real process. And, uh, and I think we need to be patient as, as we go through it. Yeah. So does that mean you don't put any money near any office asset? I can't find the right risk premium, right? So the issue that I really have is, and I'm just going to use numbers based on the current market condition. If we're writing multifamily loans today, let's call it at, at eight and a quarter percent. And we think that's a really rock solid loan. It's going to produce a mid double digits type return. Uh, and it's very liquid, and we think the likelihood of taking a loss on that is very, very low. What is the right risk premium to write a loan on an office building? It's not nine and a quarter percent. It's not ten and a quarter percent. I mean, I think the number is so staggeringly high 
that it just doesn't make debt viable for for office, right? I mean, again, if I if I'm writing loans in multifamily at eight percent, where do I write loans on an office building? Fifteen? I don't know. Thirteen? Eighteen? Pick a number. <laughs> but yeah. it's a, it's a really really high number that basically means the equity is completely completely worthless. So for me, um, you know, it, it's probably just an asset class that we will avoid for the foreseeable future on the on the credit side. I do think there could be an opportunity uh, to invest in equity in the office space, uh, you know, a few years out. Uh, and I think that's the only place that would make sense to me, right, is give yourself an opportunity to 2x or 3x your investment. You know, you don't, you don't want to make 10% if, if everything goes well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, some food for thought there. Well, Mike, thank you very much for that conversation. That was very interesting. I hope the uh, the, the big hurricane will not come, but uh, we'll see what happens there. Um, so thank you very much for your time. Appreciate it. Great talking with you. Thank you for listening to the i3 podcast. For more information, please visit www.i3-invest.com. Thank you very much.